Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. How are we doing? Happy 4th. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Let freedom ring. Um, I, uh, I do want to say happy 4th. I'm super thankful for this holiday. I'm very thankful for um, our country and freedom. This is a big deal. Uh, this right here is illegal in a lot of places and a lot of countries. And so we are very blessed. Uh, an imperfect country, but we are very, very blessed with freedom. Um, and so happy 4th. Hope you guys celebrate that well today. Also, if you are new, I want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the two pastors here, and, uh, and you've found yourself at a new church. Uh, we just started meeting regularly in September. We kind of formally launched um, on Easter, and uh, one of the things that we're doing, we're really centered uh, around Jesus, and everything we do is about Jesus, and we talk a lot about family mission presence and formation being kind of the hallmarks of what it looks like here for us to experience that. And, and so when we launched on Easter, um, we said, okay, what are we going to do? What's our first big series? What's our first big book? And so you've come in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. And uh, we uh, are slowly going through, not painfully, but I would say slowly going through uh, this book because as a new church, we said, what if we learned from like the OG new church? What if we learned from the very first new church and, uh, and hopefully avoided some of their pitfalls, but also learned from uh, the things that they did well? And so we will be in Acts, um, and today we're specifically in Acts 9. And um, we meet for the first time, really the first introduction, uh, a major character in the New Testament. Uh, he, we're going to read his name. It's Saul, but we probably know him better as Paul. And, uh, and so he is a major player uh, all throughout the rest of the New Testament. I would say probably right under Jesus as who gets the most notoriety. Um, actually, I'm reading right now or listening to a 13-hour audiobook. There it is. I mean, that not look exciting? I'm reading or listening to that. Uh, it's read in a British accent, so it is a little bit more engaging than it looks. But there is so much to be said about this guy. Uh, and for the first third uh, through the book of Acts, we really haven't even met him. And so uh, I want to introduce Paul. I want to give you like some opening stats. And I had a joke ready for this. Um, it was a joke because one of the best introductions of all time is the announcer of the Chicago Bulls uh, announcing Michael Jordan, 6'6", from North Carolina. And I had this whole joke played out. And then I remembered, and we need to talk about this. I remembered a few weeks ago, I made a reference to a 2-3 zone. And I had people, not a person, people ask me what that was. <laughs> I am not in Indiana anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm going to scrap the Michael Jordan intro joke because I just know we're not worthy of that joke. And so hypothetically just laugh. It would have been great. But I know that this apparently is just not a basketball church, and that's okay. It's okay. We will get there. Uh, so let me just do the boring introduction. His name's Saul. He changes his name to Paul. Uh, he is from Tarsus. I think I have some of those stats. He is from Tarsus, which is a city in Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. He was likely a Hebraic Jew. 
And I don't need to explain what that is because I talked about it two weeks ago and you guys listen to everything I say and remember it all. Uh, but if you weren't here two weeks ago, a Hebraic Jew is a Jewish Jew. Like he spoke the language, he lived the Jewish culture uh, versus a Hellenistic Jew, which would have been someone that adopted the Greek language and the Greek culture. So he is a Jew of Jews. He even describes himself later on like that. He uh, was not from Jerusalem, but he actually studied in Jerusalem under a really famous rabbi. His name is Gamaliel. We actually meet him in Acts 5. And, and this would have been a big deal. Studying under a, a rabbi like Gamaliel would have been like a name drop. And it was all about who you studied under then. Uh, it's like a modern day, how much CrossFitters talk about CrossFit. That's what that would have been like. Um, and uh, he also was a Pharisee. This was a big deal. He's a part of the leadership of the Jewish faith. He was not only in leadership of the Jewish faith, but he also was a Roman citizen. So he was a big deal in multiple worlds. He was respected in multiple worlds. He was incredibly zealous for the Jewish faith and persecuted both Jews that weren't following the law up to the correct standard. And he especially persecuted followers of this new way, followers of Jesus. And then he ends up writing about a fourth of the New Testament, two-thirds of the book of Acts, is about him. His conversion story is not told once, twice, but three times in the book of Acts. He confronts, I mean, this is how much, how much uh, respect he had in this new Christian church. He actually confronts the leader. He confronts Peter when he thought that Peter was doing something wrong. This guy had some kind of standing and had some kind of boldness to actually confront the guy that was at Jesus' side throughout his ministry. He's likely responsible for most of the Christian quotes that are in your aunt's house. Um, <laughs> walk by faith, not by sight. In everything, give thanks. When I am weak, he is strong. All day, Rosé. No, that wasn't him. <laughs> he was a bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles. He served the poor, and he spoke before governors and kings. He was an incredibly important person before Acts 9, but we're going to be introduced to him more fully in Acts 9, because the last time we see him before this chapter, it's just a reference, is in Acts 8. And, and I read that story of Stephen being martyred. He was the first one to die for his faith. And so we see the last picture before meeting Paul in Acts 9 is Acts 8, 2, and 3. It says, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so uh, the quotes, the ministry, the writings, all the letters that are now in our Bible, all of that came in Acts 10 and beyond. The religious zeal, the hatred, the accusations, that all comes in Acts 8 and before. Something happened in Acts 9 that radically uh, reoriented this man's life. It wasn't a slight change. Something happened that he went from this to that, all in, for us, one chapter of the Bible. Something absolutely wrecked the path that Saul was on, so much so that he changes his name, he changes his faith, and he changes the trajectory of the rest of his life. Acts 9.1 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, 
Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The first thing I want to talk about is verse 2. It says that he was persecuting followers of the way or disciples who belong to the way. And uh, the early Christian movement actually was not called Christianity. It was called the way or the way of Jesus. And, and I love that. I'm not trying to change our language now, but Christian wasn't really used hardly at all, I think three times in the entire New Testament. It was always referenced as the way because it was referencing both a behavior and a type of person that adopted that behavior. There was process and progress. So there was grace for we're in process right now. And there also was a little bit of truth of like, we expect progress. So it wasn't so much of a noun, it was a verb. The earliest followers of Jesus described themselves as the way because this was a new lifestyle. It wasn't just a title to them. And it says in verse 3 that light shone all, all around them. And if you're familiar at all with the Bible, anytime God shows up, or even someone that has been in the presence of God, like an angel, anytime he comes, light fills a room. Light, and it even sometimes starts to manifest in a place. This is uh, both literal and figurative. When Jesus comes into a room, darkness has to leave. Do you know that? When Jesus comes into the darkest place of your heart, or in the darkest room in your house, it has to leave. Amen. Jesus cannot exist where there is darkness, because when we invite him in, light is the number one thing that comes with him. And it's the light of his holiness. And, uh, and sometimes, and I've heard stories of this, sometimes God's manifest presence actually shows up. <laughs> That's crazy. It happens here. Uh, it's manifest presence. The, the spiritual Christian word for that is the Shekinah glory. And there's stories all the time of God, and it almost looks like glitter, um, but this supernatural light starts to fill a room, and often in moments of repentance or worship or prayer. I've seen it once. It's crazy. Uh, we were uh, in Las Vegas. We had this thing called House of Prayer every morning. And, uh, and I didn't need to see it. I just knew he was in the room. But we start to see, I mean, just in a, in a moment of really intense, um, thick Holy Spirit presence, we start to just see this glitter. And it's just one girl on a guitar. Her name's Leah. She led here. And she, like, promised up and down. She didn't wear any glitter that day, no makeup. And there was just glitter all over her guitar and her hands as she led us in worship. It was amazing. And that won't be the last time I see it. Also, we thought we saw it another time uh, in staff meeting. Uh, this guy Dave was leading our staff meeting. He planted the church. And uh, he's facing us. We're facing him. He was always on the lookout for the presence of God. I mean, it was like, it was strange. And he just stops mid-sentence. Because he sees, and we look back, he sees this like glittery smoke coming out of the hallway. And before he could finish his sentence, he's like, guys, is that? Somebody else chimed in and said, that's just Andrew vaping in the hallway. So this is church in Las Vegas. Sometimes it's the glory. Sometimes it's just a jewel. Can never really tell. Broke poor Dave's heart because he was so ready for the Shekinah glory to be coming to staff meeting. I, uh, there's a few things I hope for our church. I want to be marked. I want one of them to be that we're marked by the presence of God. And I think sometimes that'll mean like he actually manifests comes. But I think other times, I would love for that just to be the thing that people experience when they come here. 
I want them to experience family mission, presence, formation, but that presence piece. I would love if people came here and they're like, man, I, I loved, I met so-and-so and it was really good to hear that uh, passage preached, but I just felt like God was there. The problem is that's going to cost us something. It always costs something when God comes into a room because, yeah, the really good, like, feathery feelings come, but also occasionally the conviction of the Lord comes. Are we okay with that? I mean, it's a question I was asking myself this week. And it's, it's a question mostly for church leadership. Like, if God comes, he will disrupt a service. He'll do it in an orderly way, but things will get messy. Your house group might not get through the discussion. The prayer meeting might not end at the time that you thought. There are costs to the presence of God. A question that I'm really asking uh, myself as a person that helps shape the, the future of this church is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to go to a, a church that uh, pays the price for God being there? This is in your notes. Are we willing to give up our preferences for his presence? This is not just a church-wide question. This is a question for an individual. Because there's preferences that might need to be put on the altar for more of God. Are we willing to give up our preferences for his presence? And so Paul, Saul at the time, gets encountered by the presence of God. And uh, so much so, I mean, it was very real that it blinded him. And so he was blinded by the light. Get that out of your head now. And uh, he was led by hand to Damascus. And so he was hanging out there. And I'm going to read in verse 10. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. They go back and forth. In verse 13, finally, Ananias said, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all of the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Of course, Ananias is like terrified because, and we don't know this for sure, so this is uh, my hypothesis, but we do know from Acts 8, every Christian in the world was in Jerusalem. That's where the church was. What caused this great migration, this great spread, was actually the killing of Stephen. It is very possible, again, we don't know this, it's very possible that Ananias is now in Damascus because he had to run away from the thing that Saul helped orchestrate. Saul was there. He was standing there guarding the coats as the men stoned Stephen. And he gets this word from God that says, hey, uh, there's a guy, and his name's Saul. You've probably heard of him. He came here to arrest you. I'm going to need you to actually go find him. I'd love for you to pray for him. You've got to really trust the voice of God if you go there. And of course, Ananias has a little bit of reservation, but he actually does it. He's obedient to what he thinks God is telling him to do, what he hears God saying. And he goes and he finds Saul, and he prays for him. He, uh, he's healed of his blindness, and it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. This was some boldness by this guy. He has more trouble after this, Saul does, because of his reputation. He eventually, we read in verse 26, he eventually goes to Jerusalem, and uh, he's hanging out there, and nobody wants to be with him. Nobody from the church wants to be with him. It says at one point, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. It was this like, I think that could be true. There was this rumor mill going around. He might be a follower of Jesus, but I don't want to be the first person to like figure out if he's just undercover. It's like this. This is a good example. It's like when that friend that you knew had COVID and they texted you 
on day nine and said, hey, my quarantine's up tomorrow. You want to hang out? And you're like, man, I trust the CDC. I trust that they actually are harmless. But you didn't really want to hang out with them on day 10, did you? You heard, let's let somebody else be the first to break that mold. Except the stakes, in my opinion, are much higher here for Ananias and the rest of the disciples. And eventually, this guy named Barnabas comes and he vouches for Paul, Saul, and he says, no, guys, he's actually good. He's with us. But I want to go back, and here's where I want to spend most of my time this morning. I want to go back to verse 20. Because, and I've read, the, I've read this a few times, and this is not normally the passage or the verse I get out of Acts 9, but this is what I got this week. It says, at once, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? And I, just, I was struck by those two words. It says, at once. At once. There was no, like, waiting period. There was no, let's make sure this thing sticks. There was no, like, I want to really mull on if this gospel is really true. There was an encounter with Jesus, and then he immediately had to take that same news, and he had to take it to other people. It says, at once he started to proclaim the gospel. And everybody is confused by this. Naturally so. Because they're looking at him and they're like, didn't he come here for this? And now he's doing that? I mean, he, he came here for this. And that, these are absolutely stark and opposite of each other. Something happened in this guy's life that made him go from this way to that. And it was in a matter of days. What reasonably could cause such a change in somebody's life? Because usually, and I, I think that this is absolutely true, general wisdom... Traditional wisdom says that course corrections are often more effective than disruptions. And you could probably think of a friend that they read a blog and they blow their whole life up because of one little life hack. Everything changes. And then inevitably, three months later, the whole life gets blown up again because they read a counter argument to that blog. In general, wisdom says life hacks, um, you know, even some spiritual wisdom, uh, the, the, the effectiveness, the productivity tools, those are best done with slight changes because over time, this makes a big difference. I mean, that's just generally what we see. And in the Marlin House, we are kings and queens of continuous improvement. It is like a, an unspoken mantra. I can't tell you how many little strategies Catherine has to like doing things different. I mean, they are hilarious to me but I'm gonna tell you more about mine. Um, I, uh, I read a book on simplicity a few months ago, and I have been obsessed and constantly tweaking in Excel this like calendar of how I like use my time and how I block it, and I'm better in the morning, so I should do this there. I'm like, and it's just constant tweaking of both my life in this Excel document. It's sort of funny. Um, I read a, a blog or a, an article, a couple articles a year ago about intermittent fasting, it didn't blow up my whole life, but I started to tweak a little bit of the hours that I ate because I thought that that could help, and it did. I, uh, I was convicted a few years ago. I didn't really know what was going on in the world, but I was watching like a short television show on my iPad every night, and I made a tweak. I uh, started reading the Wall Street Journal every night, and it's America's trusted news source. And, uh, and every night now, I mean, just from one little change, it's made a huge difference in my life. I feel like I understand what's going on in the world. Um, I have lower back pain, and it is manifested in a lot of like little purchases. I have a picture. I literally was writing this sermon 
uh, in my like favorite chair, and I looked under our guest bed, and I saw all of my little lower back tools, and it's like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I do stuff like this all the time, where I just try to tweak and buy that thing or get this thing, and again, I don't think it's wrong. This stuff has helped. There is real wisdom that comes from those things. We've done what every millennial couple has done. We've made the rotation between oat and cow and almond milk, <laughs> tweaking to see which one makes us feel the best. It sounds silly, but I could start listing some of the things that you guys do. I'll say this. When we started this church, and about a year ago, there was only like a group of eight or nine of us, and, uh, and still to this day, it's incredibly difficult to order food. Yeah, Ben. Because there's a vegan and somebody on the carnivore diet in our group. Guys, they literally cannot eat any of the same foods. It is silly. <laughs> the superfood. And, and, and we're ordering food, and it's, in some ways it's convenient because they can just split whatever meal in the most strange way. But we all do this kind of thing where we make little adjustments in the name of, and this is I think this is true. In the name of more effective, feeling healthier, being better. There are thousands of books, hacks, mindsets that I think deserve course corrections. And then in a category all on his own, there's Jesus. Acts 9 tells a completely different story of anything that had happened to Saul up until this point. And again, I want to, I want to take a little bit of liberty. We don't know that this is all true. We know some of this history is true of Paul's life. But I just want to imagine for a second what Paul was like before Acts 9. It's possible that around Acts 1, uh, he was tweaking and perfecting his theology in the synagogue at Tarsus. And it's also possible around Acts 2 that he started to really hone in and modify some of his Jewish practices uh, once he joined the, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees. And I think it's totally likely that they would have corrected him there. I think it's likely... That maybe even around Acts 5, when we see Gamaliel, that Gamaliel would have helped him understand, like, hey, this Hebrew word actually is interpreted this way. Hey, when you read that part of Isaiah, this is what we believe that it's meaning. He was tweaking those things. Up until and through Acts 8, Saul was constantly sanding the rough edges, becoming a more effective Jew, becoming a more effective leader, become more zealous in his faith. And then everything changed. Acts 9 is a completely different story to anything else that he'd ever experienced. The differences in his life between Acts 8 and Acts 10 are almost uh, incomparable. There was nothing that remained in his life in Acts 10 that was there in Acts 8. Everything changed when he met Jesus. Because whatever Paul encountered, whatever happened to him on that road, begged a full life disruption. It wasn't enough just to tweak some of the things that he was doing. It blew up his life because the gospel is radical in nature. Amen? The gospel is such a radical story where it begs for us to not just become a little bit better in course correct. It begs for a full life disruption in everything that we do. Everything looks different when Jesus encounters us. It changes not just how you spend your Sunday morning. It changes the things that you watch. It changes the things that you do. It changes the people that you date or don't date. It changes the things that you say. It changes the ways that you parent. 
It changes the ways that you mourn. It changes the ways in which you hope. The gospel changes the way that you do conflict. It changes the view of reconciliation that we see. The gospel through Jesus changes everything. And Acts 9 is an incredibly crazy story. But it's not just crazy because of how bad Paul was and then how good Paul was. The crazy thing that we see in Acts 9 is that there must be a message, a way, a man that is worthy of such a life disruption. It's the craziness of Saul's testimony. That there must be something that would warrant such a life change that he was doing this and now he's doing that. And if our, um, and I don't want to bring like a ton of condemnation, but if our before and after pictures of Jesus look really similar, we might still just be in the before. Because Jesus begs total life disruption. I, uh, this is my story. I was a Christian. I mean, I've been raised in the church, and uh, I got saved like every summer at summer camp, as you do. <laughs> um, I had a big moment when I was 18, uh, went to this other summer camp and said, you know, I really want to follow Jesus and really gripped onto him for like three or four months. And uh, I, uh, I really, I, theologically, I totally agreed with Jesus. I went to college totally agreeing with Jesus. I thought it was silly that there were people there that did not believe in him. But I really didn't love, like, the whole Jesus way. I, uh, and I was unfortunately good at living on that fine line between being in the church or in this Christian ministry and being in the rest of the world and what college looked like. I was unfortunately effective at it. And, uh, and I remember, I remember at, I was 20 years old, I was sitting in Wright Food Court, and uh, I was talking to my discipler, Rob, because I had a discipler, because I was a Christian. And uh, I was talking to him, and this sounds so funny now, but I said, Rob, I, uh, I know I believe in Jesus. I was like, what I don't understand is why I don't want to do the things he asks me to do. And I don't know how Rob kept a straight face, but he did. I said, look, I know I believe in him, but I just don't really like doing the things he wants me to do. And, uh, and Rob said something incredibly profound. This, I mean, this is my moment. He said, Chris, are you sure if your actions and your beliefs don't line up, are you sure that you actually believe it? And, uh, and if you know me well, you know that I don't, I don't cuss. Cussing is not like a thing for me. So this is not me cussing. This is literal. Rob scared the hell out of me. Like the hell that was inside of me started to want to come out because I was so... Uh, enamored. I was so convicted that I might not actually believe fully, or at least my life didn't look anything like this man that I claimed to follow. Everything changed from then on. Of course, the sin patterns don't just immediately go away. Believe it or not, still very sinful. Very aware of that. Very aware of that. But I, I started to see everything through a different light. And every desire that I had at least started to change. And I was more enamored with getting close to Jesus versus the other times that I white-knuckled staying away from sin. It was a complete mindset shift. Second Corinthians, Paul writes this uh, in 
uh, chapter 5, he says, uh, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, and the new is here. Everything changed for me that day. I didn't tweak my life that day. I became a new creation. Everything in my life was put on the altar to give to God. And guys, the 180, the, the life change, it never holds if it's out of obligation. It never does. It only holds if it's out of intimacy. Obligation says, Jesus died, so I should act moral, go there on Sunday, give a little bit of my money. But intimacy says, Jesus died to bring me near, and I'll do anything to get close to him. I'll do anything, anything that's in my way between me and him, I have to get rid of that. And guys, I, I don't know what's going on in the last couple months of my life, but I am obsessed with this mindset. I'm obsessed with this picture of seeing Jesus and saying, I want to be so close to him, and I'm not doing it incredibly well, but I'm at least obsessed with this idea, both for us and for myself, of saying, I don't care what it takes, I have to get close to him. What if that was the mindset of City Church? And I know it's not going to be all of us. Statistically, like, that's a big thing to ask. Not everyone's going to be there. But what even if it were a few? What if a few of us said, I, I don't care anymore what it costs me. I don't care what I look like. I don't care the, the reputation that I lose. I have to be close to this man. What if just a few of us started to spark what happened to Paul that day on the road? Guys, I, uh, I've gone to church, and I've changed nothing in my life. There's been moments, there's been seasons of that. I am so done with that. I am so done with that. I have vulnerability moments. I have like searched scripture for loopholes. This was like a thing I did in college a couple times to find out how close to sin I could get. I have skated close to the edge. I have lived, I've set up camp in the gray areas spiritually. I've done things that weren't technically wrong, but they weren't right. I've been just vulnerable enough to evade accountability in my life. I've had quiet times purely so I could say I did. I've watched movies that I shouldn't have watched because I liked the action. I've not told the waitress about the time she didn't charge me for that thing. It was her mistake, not mine. I've raised my hand in worship when I didn't actually feel it. I've lied in a way that if you did catch me, I could defend it. I've gossiped about someone I don't like. I've faked spirituality. And my life is not absent of big sin, but I have mastered throughout at least the first 20 years of my life. I have mastered the lukewarm. I have mastered being just close enough to God. And guys, I am so done with that. That's what happened to Saul. He was so done with that. I am so done with the little minute changes. And I want to lead a church into a place there. And I know we're not a talkback church, but is there anybody else? Is there anybody else that's just a little bit hungry for like more of God? Or at least maybe you're curious. What would life look like if you actually went all in? Does that strike any kind of curiosity in anyone? Are you a little bit curious about the things that would happen in your life if you said, okay, I've done the like borderline Christianity, and maybe this isn't you, but I've done it. Is there at least a little bit of curiosity stirring in you if you just said, I want to go? Because he's so worth it. 
I don't want to be just close enough to Jesus to miss hell and get nothing else. Because Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And if that's true, that means everything is on the table. Everything, every part of my life is now able to be put on the altar. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if his way really is the way that it's described in this book, then he deserves everything in my life. And he deserves every preference that I have to be put on the table. Paul uh, later says in Romans, he says, uh, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He says, in view of God's mercy, it's in view of what God has already done. It's not in view of obligation. It's not in view of the law. It says, in view of what God's already done. We're not making religious tweaks. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Everything's on the table. Everything can go. Everything could change. If we take Jesus at his word. And I want to just leave with that question. Um, And there's no specific response. I'm big on responses. I I love that we can use the front of this stage if you just need to kneel. There's going to be people in the back to pray. We have uh, the Lord's table available to anyone who's a follower of Jesus. I, I don't know what your response is, but I urge you to make some kind of response, both in your heart, if this is you. Aren't you just a little bit curious? Aren't you curious what your life would look like? if you went all in for Jesus? Are you curious the kinds of things that a church would see if there was just even a small group that said, I don't care what it takes. I'm all in for that man. Respond uh, however you feel led, but we're gonna go into a time of worship. And I wanna mull on that question. What's it look like to really go all in?